I'm your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Jeff Woods, the sonic storyteller. Jeff is an iconic radio personality, author, and podcaster. His trademark is his highly recognizable, smoothly relaxed voice, which you will hear very shortly. Jeff was the creator of the radio series, The Legends of Classic Rock, and he subsequently created and currently hosts its spin-off series called Records and Rockstars which since February of last year is also available as a podcast. Jeff is also the author of the book, Radio, Records, and Rockstars, featuring a mix of his own life stories intertwined with a variety of his excellent conversations with rock's greatest legends. Welcome, Jeff, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? Andrew, thank you so much. It's good to be here. That was a great intro. You've done your homework. I love that. Where am I? Uh, Town of the Blue Mountains, which includes uh, along Georgian Bay, uh, a number of towns, Craigleith, um, and then Thornbury, which is where I am, and then it extends over to Meaford and up to Owen Sound and up to Tobermory. So I'm kind of in the midst of that. South Georgian Bay, as it's known, near Collingwood, for anyone that's not familiar. Well, that's what I, when you first said that, that's my first thought is Collingwood. So that, this is just, uh, that's all within Town of Blue Mountain. I'm 20 minutes from Collingwood. I go there often. I hope you're a skier. I, you know what I was. My knees don't like it, so. Well, I want to ask you, as we've ex- entered this exciting post-pandemic era, what are you working on? Thanks for asking. I'm uh, just wrapping up season six of Records and Rockstars, and um, and happy to do so, to go into summer encore airings, as we like to call them, re-rolls. Uh, for July and August, but um, that uh, keeps me busy on a weekly basis. It spins off into a podcast, as you noted, uh, which is kind of nice because for those who can't listen in real time when the show airs live on radio stations across the country, um, comes as a podcast, as you know, you can listen anytime you like from wherever you like, and uh, it's sort of a condensed, scoped version of the hour-long radio show that you get in about a 20-minute version on podcast. So that's Records and Rockstars. There's another thing that we'll talk about, I hope, um, which is a new podcast I'm developing and releasing, you know, launching in September, called the Blue Hotel Podcast. So that's in its infancy right now in terms of brainstorming and uh, planning. Exciting. You're, you're always on to something new. Well, you know, you try. Not everything <laughs> works. You try your best. You, you, you exercise that creative muscle. And uh, if it flies, great. If not, you try something else. Well, let's start here because you are the best person, Jeff, to ask this question. How do you define classic rock? Is it a time period defined by the calendar or by specific artists or by a particular social era? What a great question. You know, um, (laughs) when you say that, I think back to the late, great Torontonian Dallas Good of the Sadies, who passed early this year. He and his brother Travis um, ran that band for all these years, and I can't imagine they'll carry on. And why I bring that up is that Dallas hated the expression classic rock. Mm. He hated the the tight genre or format that it seemed to express to him, and I had empathy for his position on that. 
Well, as you may know, uh, in the 90s in particular, classic rock became a pretty uh, ubiquitous, prolific uh, format across North America for radio stations. And it wasn't a bad thing, or it didn't start as a bad thing, <laughs> in that uh, it, it really threw back to the 60s and 70s, largely. The roots were in the 50s, but the, the real meat of the format was when the Beatles you know, sort of showed up in the 60s, and then Cream and, 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 and Zeppelin and all that British rock that threw back to the blues really helped define classic rock, which extended to American bands and Canadian bands and other bands throughout the world. And it was a way for radio to say, here's what we are. We're a rock station, but we're playing the stuff that people know and love from the 60s, 70s, 80s. Then the 90s came, right? Mm -hmm. Grunge, and I love that 90s stuff from Seattle and other parts of North America. Um, and sometimes classic rock extended into that and not much further beyond. These days, we don't hear so much about classic rock radio. Um, it's, it's, um, it, it still exists all over North America, but it's, it's lesser because of the aging uh, demographic that would be into it. Mm -hmm. um, Radio stations want to appeal to 20-somethings and 30-somethings, too. A lot of whom do uh, love that music, too. Yes. There's, kid, there's kids we both be that are 6 and 7 and 8 and 10 and 12 and 15 that think Jimi Hendrix is the greatest thing since sliced bread. Or The yeah. Doors. Or, you know, you can name any of your favorite bands and kids tend to like them. So it's not dead, but it's not such a big thing. And I'll tell you this just to wrap the thought around classic rock is that my Records and Rockstars series, I've tended to follow something I borrowed from another market, which is uh, untethered by genre or era. Mm. I personally prefer um, looking at music as a playlist. So you take a theme um, and you choose the songs in that playlist within the theme that relate to it, no matter what kind of music they are. I'll play old school country, I'll play rhythm and blues, I'll play funk. I'll play rock. I'll play a bit of jazz if it fits. I'll play um, a folk if it fits. And and it all is intertwined anyway. Mm -hmm. And I, fi I find that people's tastes are not so specific to one genre or one format. So they tend to enjoy it, and the show has done really well using that sort of approach. Well, on that note, perhaps this is a very strange follow-up question, but could a current act in 2022 create new classic rock? Well, it's, it's interesting that you noted it because that's one of the approaches that classic rock radio in the 90s and 2000s took. It was, it was, hey, listen, we've been playing these things that are 10 and 20 and 30 and 40 and 50 years old. How do we um, maintain this format, not have it die out? Because, for example, in the 90s and 2000s, uh, Tom Petty was still making records and Chrissy Hind is still making records and all these acts that... Uh, came out years ago, and the Rolling Stones, for, for that matter, the longest-standing mm -hmm. band. How do we how do we let them in and play their new stuff? Because some of it really deserves, uh, you know, airtime and a spotlight. So one of the one of the uh, expressions or one of the positioning statements was um, new classic rock or new music from a classic rock artist, and you would you would play the the latest, or you would double shot it and play old Stones and new Stones, for example. Yeah. And sure, it has a place, particularly when it's those artists who were still making records, they were still viable, still making great songs, oftentimes. 
But then there were bands like, uh, let's let's face it, uh, probably the best example because of the Rolling Stone um, 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 launch into the stratosphere, the Sheepdogs. Yes. Who, who, when you listen to the Sheepdogs, they sound one minute like the Almond Brothers and the next like the Black Crows and, and the next maybe a bit like themselves. Yeah. But they're a real throwback band. And, and they have all the elements of those bands that we know and love from the classic rock so-called format. And there's lots of other examples of those bands. Well, speaking of throwback, Jeff, I want to go, with your permission, all the way back and get the Jeff Wood story. Where were you born? And tell us about your upbringing. Thank you, Andrew. Uh, I was born in Oshawa, Oshawa, Ontario, the Oshawa General Hospital in 1964 on a, on a, on a very cold winter, I think it was a Sunday. Um, whatever day it was, it was the day that Led Zeppelin 1 came out. The 12th wow. Of, <laughs> no, no, I, would, uh, no, I, I, mixed, I, I, I mixed that up. I was five the day Led Zeppelin 1 came out in January okay. 12th, 69. I was born in 64. I, uh, I, I, yeah. So there's that. Oshawa, blue-collar town, General Motors town. A lot of my friends' dads worked there. My dad did not, but he uh, ran one of the early big-box stores, as we came to know them, called Millwork and Building Supplies. So I was kind of like Oshawa boy who yeah. stayed there for 19 years till I moved on to college. And what was your family unit? So you mentioned your dad. Who else was in the house when you grew up? Right, right. Mom and dad stayed together um, until recently when my dad passed. So my mom and dad and the two brothers. I was the middle child. Shocking. Not, re- <laughs> not really. Um, older brother, younger brother. Um, they're and, both living in Oshawa still, Andrew. Oh, fabulous. So it gives you a reason to go back home. It does once in a while. And my mom still lives there, too. Oh, that's great. And when you grew up, high school, junior high, high school, were you an athlete, a musician? What what were you into in those? Oh, oh, good question. Um, I was like track and field. I was never the best, but I was pretty good. I was volleyball team. Pretty good at that, too. (laughs) I liked basketball, but I didn't have quite the confidence to try out for the team, so I didn't. So I watched from the sidelines. You know, I played hockey as a kid, you know. (laughs) <laughs> you'll love this. So I wanted to play hockey. I couldn't really skate. I said to my dad, I'd love to play. I was, you know, five years old. And he signed me up, and he wasn't too sure where he should sign me up, so he asked his friends, and they put me on this team that was really good. Yeah. And so at one end of the ice, while they practiced and scrimmaged, uh, they put me at the other end of the ice alone, Talk about character building. Yes. They put put me at the other end of the ice alone to learn to skate by myself. And somehow, I was too young to know what intimidation was, I guess. I I went with it. I just jumped in there. I did. And that very first day, it was was crazy because my dad and I both forgot my hockey stick. So there's this little kid who can't skate at one end of the ice with no hockey stick, doing his best to learn. Soon I got transferred to uh, to a team that was more, um, well, that was less. <laughs> <laughs> but better fit. And you right, got your stick fit. back. Yeah, man. And I, uh, and I became a pretty good hockey player. You know, fast forward two, three years, and I became a left wing man. And I ended up getting a hat trick, and my dad couldn't have been happier. Well, these are the, isn't it amazing that that's what you remember? That's fantastic. Like perse- perseverance, persistence pays off. Or it can oh, anyway. Resilience and perseverance for sure. Right. Now, Jeff, you say you were 19 years in Oshawa. What took you away from Oshawa? And was this for college? Where'd you go? 
Well, when you when you talked about my interests, so sports was certainly secondary. Uh, music was everything. And so when I was in grade 11, 12, I'm thinking, what am I going to do with my life? I'd already sort of decided I'd be a journalist because my teachers were always like, this kid's a bit of a writer, they'd say to my parents at the teacher-parent meetings. <laughs> we think he's a writer. Hmm. So I... I thought maybe I am a writer and I wanted to become a journalist. So I, you know, looked at Ryerson. And then the more I thought about it, Andrew, the more I thought, well, most writers that I was familiar with is this kid growing up in Oshawa and reading the Oshawa Times and the other newspapers. Most writers write newspaper stories. Mm -hmm. I hadn't thought beyond that to music critics and uh, playwrights and uh, screenwriters. And I, and I thought most of the news in the newspapers was bad, and I didn't want to write bad news. I wanted to write things that were more celebratory than uh, reporting bad news, crimes and such. So I changed gears and thought, what about, what about being on the radio? Because I loved listening to Bob Makowitz, who mm -hmm. uh, was the program director and host of The Rock Report on Q107 in the sort of 1980, early 80s, right? Well, right through to the mid-80s, and I think he stayed there until 88, as a matter of fact. He was sort of the guy I looked at as, maybe I can do that. Love the way he sounds, love what he does, love how it's all focused on music he loves. So I looked up colleges, and Ryerson had a broadcast course, as did Humber, as did Fanshawe in London. I chose that one, and I applied. And I moved to London, Ontario, and did the two-year diploma course. And how'd you enjoy London? Because that's a, a bigger town than Oshawa, but it's still got a little bit of small town feel. Did you enjoy your time in London? I really did. I was just so focused on the job at hand, which was learning how to do radio, that London to me was a place to do radio. Uh, sure, it was a college town because of Western and because of Fanshawe. And sure, it was the first place I got to live away from my parents. So that was great, right? Yeah. Spread your, spread your wings. Uh, I still go back to London with some fondness. Uh, I have no desire to live there, but I certainly love uh, going and visiting. And my show is on 98.1 FM there, the classic rock station. So I'm grateful that uh, there's still an interest in that town where I learned how to do radio for the kind of radio I do now still. That's great. That's, uh, I want to come back to how you initially do, but I'm going to give you a quote of your own and you're of course perhaps best known as one of the most recognizable voices at legendary toronto rock station q107 here's your words my fondest memory is the feeling i had sitting in the control room on the 30th floor of the hudson bay tower at young and bloor looking straight down young street through those tall thin windows it felt like a privilege sitting in that chair at q107 as a kid who had grown up with toronto radio scruff connors bob Mackwitz, and the mighty q I felt like I had arrived where I'd always wanted to be, on my favorite radio station, playing records from the bands I loved and being able to tell stories about them. Let's start at this beginning. How did you initially get into radio and how did you get to Q107? Thank you. Uh, so I went to the guidance counselor at O'Neill <laughs> Collegiate in Oshawa and found out you know, what my opportunities were, what my options were. And then, as I mentioned, chose Fanshawe. And went and uh, and studied hard and, 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 and quickly, well, not quickly, but after the first year, decided that I wanted to try 
running things, so they made me program director of the closed circuit station. We had that, right? They just played in the halls of the school. And then we had an FM license, too, which was 6XFM. So I I got to do shifts on the proper FM station and the closed circuit sort of AM rock-formatted little hit station and and be a a so-called manager of that station. You know, we had a sales manager and a promo manager and a production manager and me as the program director. So I just I just ate it up. It felt like I was working at a real radio station. And then, you know, between first and second year, I, I got on summer staff. They hired four of us full-time to run the FM license 6X. So I did that, and I thought it was really on my way. And by second year, I it was, you know, majoring in um, announcing. Yeah. And, uh, and, and near the end of the year, what you do at college radio is you send your demos out across the country to the stations you might want to work at. So I did. Now here it is, Andrew. One of the things, one of the pieces of wisdom that the instructors and former students would impart was don't be too specific. Just get a job Mm -hmm. and don't be afraid to go to a small town. Really learn your craft, not just in school, but in the real world, because it takes a while to know what the hell you're doing. I was, I don't know about stubborn. Some people might have thought that. I was more um, focused and targeted. I wanted to work for a rock station, and I Mm -hmm. thought to myself, there's enough rock stations, even then, in 1985, that maybe one of them might think that I'm good enough to maybe do an overnight show at (laughs) least, right? And and I'm being sincere. That's that's the way I looked at it. So I sent 10 tapes out to the 10 big markets. Uh, You know the ones, Vancouver. Vancouver, Calgary, Edmonton, Winnipeg, Toronto, Montreal, Ottawa, Halifax. I probably dipped down to even London. Maybe not. <laughs> and uh, Jeff, I don't want to date you here, but for our, our listeners who are in this digital world, in 1985, what did it physically mean to be sending out these demos? What were you actually sending and how were you doing it? Oh, great point. Uh, typically, the best way was to send an actual uh, scope, um, a recording of a show you'd done on the radio. But because 6X wasn't formatted as a rock station, it was formatted as a so-called middle-of-the-road station, I dummied, meaning I, I, I made up. I went into the studio and, and played records we weren't playing on that station and talked about stories we weren't talking about on that station and uh, produced a demo that was fake but real because it was me and it was it was a representation of what I could do. And I put it on a cassette and I put <laughs> the cassette and the resume in the mail in a padded envelope and sent 10 of them to these 10 stations, including Q107. Yeah. Including, uh, what were the Kick in Calgary and K97 and, uh, um, and I guess in Vancouver it would have been Rock 101 or The Fox, blah, blah, blah. All these stations, Q104, Halifax, The Rock of the Atlantic, sent them all out and waited for responses. I think I got three responses. That's One, pretty good. Yeah, it was. I was thrilled, right? These guys wrote me back in letters, snail mail. Um, I think it was Winnipeg or Edmonton said, thanks, but no thanks. <laughs> good luck in your future endeavors, yeah. as it were. But then I got um, a call from Q107 Toronto, Gary Slate was running the show still then. And he personally called me and said, why don't you come in for an interview? So I did. And it was kind of cool because Mako was working there um, for him. And Gary was behind the big desk. And I was nervous, but I was there. Yeah. 
And he said, actually, Jeff, we like what you do, but we don't have anything for you, but let's keep in touch. So that's not bad. So we yeah. And then, you know, I would call him and he'd say, ah, I still don't have anything. Because, you know, there's only so many slots at any, you know, radio station. If they don't have room, they don't have room. Somebody either has to leave voluntarily or get replaced, and that hadn't happened yet. We're talking, um, I still hadn't graduated, right? Mm. It was like May of uh, 85, and we were about to graduate, so I was okay. just anxious. And then, and then one day, um, I was looking at the cover of Broadcaster Magazine, and on the cover was Bro Jake Edwards with his dark shades and his curly hair and his, his mustache, and I thought, I want to work for that guy. And I had sent the tape to him already. And he called out of the blue. And he said, I got a job for you. You want to come down and do overnights, Q104 Halifax? I said, yes. Wow. I, and he said, well, I'm going to give you ten grand a year. When can you be here? I said, I'll be there in two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> Just like that. It was that easy. And you were was, rich. <laughs> there was no, uh, you know, there was no signing bonus. There was There was nothing really other than a handshake virtual over the telephone yeah i showed up and true to his word there was a job for me and uh, and i got a paycheck within two weeks of that now the the rub about all that is that literally the day after i agreed with jake to go to halifax to work q104 gary slate called me oh my boy from q107 and you know they knew each other i think they talked i think gary was doing an integrity check because gary called and said i got a job for you I said, well, funny the timing of that, Gary. Thank you. Uh, I just took a job yesterday with uh, with Jake down in Halifax, Q104. And you know what he said? He said, uh, what are they paying you? <laughs> <laughs> I said, oh, it's not important. What's important <laughs> is I got a gig, and I said yes, and I can't go back on my word. So off I went. But I was thrilled, though, because, A, I had a job, and, B, you don't want to start at the top because you got yeah. nowhere to go but down, right? So I went to <laughs> Halifax and uh, learned how to do it a little bit better for a couple of years. And you showed your integrity. I guess so, yeah. I mean, I, you, you got to keep your word. Now, moving from there, when did you transition to Toronto? Well, a couple of years into that, you know, I, I in Halifax, I did the overnights for a while, and... Uh, I did some production and I did some interviews. It was the first place I really got to interview a rock star. It was Tom Cochran who was the first one. Mm. <laughs> and uh, a couple years in, I was married and, and my wife and I were, were kind of missing our families. Uh, hers was in the Toronto area, so mine was in Oshawa. And we kind of we wanted to get back home to Ontario as much as Nova Scotia was a great place to start. We were we were we were dying to get back. I I sent tapes out to Toronto, but back to the old thing. If there's not room, there's not room, and nobody really had a position for me at that point. So we decided to just go back anyway without me having a gig. She mm. got a gig at an office. I went back with the intention of uh, working with my dad in his uh, kitchen cabinet manufacturing plant, and uh, until until something came through at radio. So that's what we did. And when did this break come through? Did you actually go work for your dad, and were you? Did I did, you know that. Through? I did. It was it was great. I was running the sort of the shop floor for him, building things and and managing people who were building things. And my dad came out of his office and he said, "It's Bob Mackowitz on the phone at Q107." <laughs> <laughs> he was he was as shocked and surprised as I was. Went to the phone and Bob said, "Come on in for an interview," and I did. And 
in that meeting, he uh, effectively offered me a job to do swing at Q, and that was in, just before um, it was Christmas of 87. So I started in January of 88 at Q. Wow. And then you had this amazing career there. I, I want to talk about the starting of this radio show, Legends of Classic Rock. You obviously have a genuine reverence for classic rock records, the rock stars, and you created this radio show made up of a mix of storytelling, history, and, and your commentary. Is 14 seasons this ran from 2001 to 2015. Legends of Classic Rock at its peak boasted more than a million weekly listeners. How did you initially come up with the concept for the show and how did it evolve? I can't take all the credit. You know, most great ideas come from <laughs> anywhere. In this case, the program director at Q107 at that time, after we had gone officially classic rock, um, this was, uh, yeah, as you mentioned, 2001, um, we were still in North York before we moved to the Eaton Center downtown and merged and became Chorus. So we're still Q107 working for Western International Communications, WIC, in North York with AM640 down the hall. And the boss of those stations was a guy named Stu Myers who had come up from The Edge, from CFNY, because he was more of a rock guy than he was a new rock guy. So he was happy to be running Q, and he was my boss, and we had great affinity for one another. Um, our attitude was uh, was was very much the same. We wanted to win, uh, we wanted to be decent human beings, and we wanted to play rock music, and we wanted to make a decent buck. So Stuart came to me one day in the smoking room, which is what we had back in the day, which sounds crazy now, doesn't it? <laughs> it does sound crazy now. He said, and, and, he's, and we're just there, and there's probably a couple of other people there, and he still says, oh, what about a, Jeff, what about a, and he was a man of few words, but when he spoke, you listened, because they were, they were always strong. What about a show that celebrates, you know, the music we're playing, this classic rock? He goes, I can imagine, I can imagine the word legends, maybe, in the name of the show, but, um, but I'll leave it up to you. Uh, and, he, and he goes, give it some thought and we'll do it, if you don't mind. And he walked away. And about two weeks later, the show was on the air as the Legends of Classic Rock. 14 years. <laughs> Man, 14 years. You know, I was doing it on top of all the other work I was doing at the station. I was the music director and the assistant program director. And I was a busy boy, but this was the really, really fun part of the job, was uh, creating a, an hour a week. And with these five daily spinoffs that promoted it. So uh, it was a lot of fun. It wasn't a very good show at the beginning. It was just me just trying. Mm -hmm. But over time, it became popular. And, and, and I'm proud to say that on Saturday mornings, when it aired at 9 a.m. for a few years, uh, Blair Bartram decided to put it at that time slot, in addition to the one that everybody knew, which was Sunday nights at 9. It was number one in Toronto, Saturday mornings at 9, uh, for all radio stations. So that's probably my biggest listenership in my career thus far. I was thrilled to be able to reach that many people talking about songs I loved. There was a transition eventually, and this show, Legends of Classic Rock, was reborn or perhaps evolved into a new show, Records and Rock Stars. Jeff Woods, you said, a corporation owns Legends of Classic Rock by name, but they don't own me, my voice, or the things I care about. What was the transition in process of shutting down Legends of Classic Rock and launching Records and Rock Stars? 
<laughs> That's a great question. Well, you know, every dog has his day. And I always say the more money you make and the greater your titles, the closer you are to the exit door. So um, eventually, I think the accountants at the corporation um, looked at the spreadsheet and they were looking to save money. Maybe the quarterly profits were down. You know, they go up and down. And they probably looked at all the employees and they probably had red lines around or red circles around uh, the people that were making more than X dollars. And there was my name. And uh, they probably went, what is he doing again? And how much are we paying him? Hmm. So uh, I was on the chopping block, as many people were at different points and still are in the media world. So, uh, so they let me go. And, and to your point, they owned everything. That's the kind of the crappy thing or the unfortunate thing about content working for someone else. Everything you do while you're there, it's, 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 it's written, it's expressed in your contract that uh, they own it, which wouldn't be completely awful if they kept it alive, but they don't. They usually shelve it, and then you go away. And nobody ever hears from it or of it again, other than just talking about whatever happened to that show. I liked that show. Where where is he? Mm-hmm. Where's the show? So uh, those uh, five hundred episodes have never been heard again. Um, so what did I do? I was free. I was a free agent. I thought, well, I'll do the exact same show effectively, uh, and call it something different, and I'll own it. You know. And um, and I'll go to radio stations and say, hey, I'm back. Remember that show I had? Here's the new version. Yeah. Do you want to take it? And and granted, back in the day, it was easier to get stations. We had 25, 30 stations running that show. Um, and it's varied from, you know, half a dozen to, to 10 or 12 ever since. But I, that's fine with me. Um, well, I, I, and, I've, and because I've turned it into a podcast, it makes it all the more... Uh, worthwhile well i want to talk about that on on this podcast jeff we like to see how the sausage gets made i don't really (laughs) understand the business side of broadcasting what does syndicated mean and is there a difference between the legends of classic rock series and the records and rock stars series in terms of how it's distributed and how it's consumed oh well sure syndication uh, it was more um, prevalent uh, in days gone by it's tougher now um, Rockline was one of those shows that came out of the U.S., for example. That was a syndicated program that ran on Q107 and probably a hundred other stations across North America. It was an interview show that ran Monday nights, and Bob Coburn was the host, and he would interview bands, and they would talk, and they would play songs. That was cool. That was syndicated um, at Q107 with Wick, their you know, sort of corporate owner. They... Um, they had World Album Premiere was one of them. And then they had Legends of Classic Rock. And then when they merged and became Chorus, they also had the ongoing history of new music with Alan Cross. So these shows, uh, the syndication means they weren't just on one local station. They were played on many stations. So the host does his show or her show, and it's played wherever it's played. And it could be vastly across North America, which often the case it is. The syndication model's tough, though, because um, it, it takes uh, salespeople to sell the ads and, and monetizing it and making money from it is harder and harder as time goes on. So uh, what I do, I'm my own syndicator now. I, I, mm-hmm. I, 
I have, instead of getting the stations to give me money, some of them do, I often just take the commercials. I say, here, here's my hour-long program. I know you're going to play commercials two or three times an hour. Why don't you give me two or three minutes an hour? I'll sell them to, you know, companies like a like a music store or a, mm-hmm. or a, a place that sells snowmobiles or <laughs> a place that sells Indian motorcycles and on and on and on. And I get the clients myself and I do business with them. I just provide the show to the to the radio station and um, and and no money has changed hands between us. I deal directly with the clients. I make a living. The station gets the content. It's it's pretty clean. But I mentioned earlier the best thing about it for a broadcaster is I own the content. So if if yes. a station drops it, they can't own my stuff. Jeff, when you talk to young up and coming creators, is that kind of the biggest lesson learned? The value of owning your material. It is, but it's it's a it's a double edged sword in that you you don't always have a platform. You know, you can't just show up as a broadcaster out of college and say, I'm going to do a show and I'm going to own it. If no one's playing it, if no one's hearing it, uh, it's not worth anything. So mm-hmm. I, I'm fortunate that I, and, and thankful to the broadcast companies that believed in me enough to put me on the radio so I could learn how to do these things and become somewhat known. At the same time, uh, when you get let go or when you part ways for whatever reason, um, you don't own the thing. So uh, the advice is to the advice is to go do a podcast and try to <laughs> and try to find a way to monetize it so that you can actually uh, not have to do a day job. You can do the thing you love. Well, it sounds, Jeff, like you become uh, much more cognizant or aware of you are the brand, Jeff Woods Inc. Is this better, worse, or the same as as working for someone else? You know, it's pros and cons, isn't it? Really, because. Uh, you, what's the old expression among radio salespeople or any salespeople really in any sector? You eat what you kill. Yes. Pardon the pardon the violence of that connotation, <laughs> that expression, but it simply means uh, no one's sending you a direct deposit or a check for uh, for your for your services. You're you're doing it all yourself, or you're hiring someone uh, to broker those deals. So, uh, you know, it's more work. It's more focus. It's. Uh, you know, it's more energy exerted, but I think it's worthwhile, which is why I continue to do it. So, yeah, I started, what did I, hmm, 2016, I launched Records and Rockstars. Mm-hmm. So there was a transition period where I was sort of brainstorming and figuring out if I could do it, and it turns out I could. And this easily accessible technology has allowed you to get into podcasting. You now have 140 episodes of Records and Rockstars as a podcast. What did you know about podcasting at the time you got into it? And, and do you believe radio and podcasting are the same thing or, or different? Yeah, well, different delivery methods and different ways of consumption. The great thing about podcasting, to me, the, one of the many great things is that people can choose to listen where they want, when they want. Uh, it, gets, it gets sent to your uh, device, and there it is. You can listen to it in the car, on the way to wherever. You can listen to it lying in bed at night. You can listen to it whenever the heck you want. It's not contingent upon a schedule, your schedule and the and the broadcaster's schedule. So I love that that uh, flexibility of listening for the listener, mm-hmm. um, and 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 then the other thing I guess is, let's face it, uh, podcasts don't have as many commercial messages, and mm-hmm. a lot of younger people don't have the appetite to sit through three and four minute blocks of commercials to get more of what they came for. 
um, anyone my age is used to those commercial breaks because that's what we grew up with on radio. Um, but I can't imagine a, a 17 year old. Ha- well, I guess if you're in the car, though, you know, you're kind of captive audience and you and you do listen. Yeah. That being said, Andrew, I love Sirius Satellite for the reason that while you have to pay a monthly subscription, you don't have to sit through commercials. So there's pros and cons of everything. Well, you certainly changed with the times, Jeff. One big project you also did in 2016, you wrote a book, Radio Records and Rock Stars. This was a mix of your kind of most intimate personal and professional details, along with firsthand accounts and exclusive conversations that you had with the legends of rock. How did you decide to write this book? And I'm, I'm assuming it was emotionally grueling to get into this content. It was really, at the end of the day, it was really fun. I loved doing it. So when I was still working for the corporation, I was living in Calgary doing a doing an afternoon show on one of their stations. It was the Q107 of the West in Calgary. And uh, it was during that time that I was also, part of my paycheck was from the national office. They wanted me to do the radio show, Legends, and other things to be determined. So I determined that, why don't I write a book and utilize a lot of the interviews I'd done over the years working for the company? And uh, so I started by, you know, sifting through the audio that was in the archives and coming up with a concept for the book. And as I was in the process of doing that, that's when I parted ways with the corp. And, and I thought, well, I can, I can still do the book um, on my own. I don't need them. It's not like they were going to really do anything anyway other than sit on the sidelines and say yes. So they had already given me all the audio for all the interviews, so I had written expressed permission to use all of the stuff I'd created. That was good. Mm-hmm. So I just carried on. I, um, I, w- I had moved back to Toronto from the West, and I decided I would do it. And then, um, and then my partner at the time said, why don't we move somewhere nicer? <laughs> So you can write your book uh, with a with a nice view, maybe to the mountains. So oh. I said, well, "What are you thinking?" And she said, "Well, Banff or Canmore or Nelson or somewhere in BC." Or so we decided on Canmore, and I got a view of the Three Sisters Mountains out my office window, and I sat down every morning at eight thirty, and I wrote um, my life story. And then, as you mentioned, it, it alternates between that. And and the interviews that I did with all these artists, like 24 interviews with everybody from Bowie to the Stones to, to Ozzy Osbourne and Rush and so on. And, and, and I guess that was October I started writing. And in March it was done and sent it to my, you know, grammatical editor. And by that June, it was, it was out. Spent six months doing marathon dusk till dawn writing sessions in the shadows of the Three Sisters Mountain Range in Canmore. Jeff, I have to ask, why did you ever come back? Why did you ever leave <laughs> Canmore? Great, that sounds amazing. It's a great point. I, You know, if, if I were 10 or 15 years older at the time, I probably would have stayed there. But I, I just felt the hunger for a bigger market. I just felt like there was more to be done in a Toronto or a, or a New York or a, yeah, those are kind of the ones I had in my head. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I went back to the city and thought there'd be more opportunity, A, to do voice work. A lot of studios want you to come in to do production. Uh, B, to do events. 
there's loads of clubs in Toronto and venues I could host things at. Um, there's more bookstores to go and do book appearances. It just seemed like I wanted to go to a thriving sort of place to continue my career rather than a retirement kind of atmosphere like Canmore, certainly for a media person. Now, uh, this book has now turned into an audio book, a 15-hour audio book. I have to assume, Jeff, for you, this was a slam dunk for you to record. It seemed rather obvious, right? Thank you. Um, it was it was the plan from the beginning, you know, release the hardcover, put it out in paperback, have an e-book available. They're, they're all still available. And then after a year-ish, uh, put it out in audio form for the people that would really prefer to hear it rather than to have to uh, read it. So And I had all the original interviews um, that I had transcribed for the, the written version. So I just uh, used those. So, mm-hmm. so it's kind of fun, actually, to, to hear the people answering the questions in real time, as it were, rather than reading them. So that's done really well, and it still seems to sell on Audible, um, which, is, which is a thrill for me because the work's long done and it's still selling. Yes. And today, Jeff, you have a, a, a studio, Wildwoods Blue Studio. I assume this is in the town of Blue Mountains. I assume that's where you are now. What is this studio? Who built it? What was it? Was it from the ground up or was it something before? <laughs> this story is is really exemplary of my history um, as a broadcaster and as a uh, romantic partner, as it were, in that um, I fell in love with a woman and uh, we, uh, we, I still lived in Thornbury. I still live in Thornbury now. But her place is at the base of Blue Mountain because she's, she's lived there much of her life. And she's a skier and her kids all ski. And we fell in love. And, and, and six, seven, eight, nine, ten months in, uh, I was looking um, in her garage for something. And like, here, let me paint the picture for you. Um, single garage, but really long. You could fit two cars front to back. Okay. There were no cars in that garage, like a lot of people's garages. There's no room for cars. There's uh, boats, and there's sleeping bags, and there's books, and there's games, and there's freezers, and there's bikes, and there's everything you can imagine in someone's basement and garage stuffed into a garage. Okay. And there were two little paths right and left that you could kind of get down to reach over and grab things you needed. But it was, it was, I had a before picture that was truly unbelievable when you saw the after picture. I said to her, I said, this would make a great studio, don't you think? <laughs> and she, being a real music fan, too, uh, said, go for it. So I, I got a piece of paper out and pencil and started sort of drawing my vision of what this studio would look like. There'd be a stage for bands to play on to do videos of and have a live audience and uh, there would be you know my recording console much like I'm sitting in front of now in another studio and COVID hit but I kept it I kept going I, 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 I built it anyway and thought when COVID's over we'll uh, we'll be able to use it in a way that's you know part of the vision of having people come and watch shows having bands come and perform and do podcasts uh, Etc., and 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 a place really for her kids to do music lessons because I put all kinds of gear in there. I put a drum kit. I put all the stuff you'd need for a full band okay. recording session or practice session, and a stage that was twelve by fourteen, and a 
and seating for 30 people and on and on and on. And I changed the traditional roll-up garage door to a double door that you opened up and people could sit in the driveway even and watch shows. And then, and then we decided to break up. (laughs) And the studio still operates today because the music fan that she is became a, became a booker of bands that go to this studio that's been rebranded with my blessing as Studio 79. And I moved, well, I didn't really move. I took a lot of the gear, (laughs) my personal gear, back to Thornbury, where I live, which is also town of the Blue Mountains. And I'm back in the attic where I'd started a few years ago. And there's room here for bands to come, and they still come here. We just don't do shows here okay. in the little studio. Guys come in, and women come in, and they play and do the podcast, and, and that still shines brightly. But in terms of public shows, uh, she's doing that at Studio 79, and uh, that's on Instagram. See, I, there's, 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 no, uh, there's no resentment or <laughs> bad blood. I still promote her stuff. Last night she had uh, a family curse band with uh, Neil from 5440 and his daughter Candle Osborne. Mm-hmm. Um, Gordy Johnson, I think, from Big Sugar is doing a show there because I had talked to him about it and she followed through and booked it. She's got all kinds of artists coming in there two, three times a month and doing shows. My my real desire, though, is to talk to bands and make mm-hmm. podcasts and put them on my radio show. So... I'm doing what I wanted to do in the first place. She's doing shows for she and her friends and her community. It's kind of a win-win. Well, talking with people is what you're all about. You've done interviews with the biggest of big names, Bowie, Ozzy, Keith Richards, all three members of Rush, Ronnie Wood, Mick Fleetwood, the list goes on and on. Jeff, who were you a real fanboy when you were talking to? Well, all of them, but... But because I've, you know, become a broadcaster and an interviewer, I, I'm there as a fan first, but I'm there to um, draw from them some insights and some, some stories. And uh, I think of myself more as the, the interviewer than the fan um, because that's the art of it, right? But at the end of the day, I'm still a fan. I, I don't really want to talk to anybody that I'm not a fan of. That's not fun. And working for myself, I can choose who to talk to, right? Yes. Um, but yeah, it was intimidating. There's no question about it. Even that first interview I alluded to earlier in 1985 or six with Tom Cochran, I was 21 years old and I was afraid. I don't, I don't know if I can do this. He's kind of a rock star. He'd just come out with Boy Inside the Man and a big solo, first solo hit and and they threw me on with one day's notice. They're like, you got to interview Tom Cochran tomorrow. He's got a new record. He's going to come in and he'll, he'll bring two copies of the record and you just talk to him for an hour and play songs. That's a pretty daunting thing when you've never done it before. And no, no internet to jump on and get backstory. <laughs> no, you know what you got? You got a one or two page bio uh, typed out, handed to you, and it talked about you know the new record and, and that was kind of it. But a credit to Tom Cochran, him knowing that I was as green as green could be. He was sweet, kind, fun, funny, and accommodating. And we had a great hour. And that really set me up for a career because I thought if if he can be kind um, to me, 
in my inexperience, then uh, it's not going to be so bad. And I've probably done seven or eight hundred interviews since, and and I've never really had a moment where I thought I need to quit. Mm. <laughs> you know? well, it's never been so intimidating or so train wreck ish <laughs> that I wanted to run away and hide. Um, I well, mean, there were moments that were uncomfortable, but by and large, uh, that was that was the minority. And that shows it's your true passion. I, I want to ask you about a few in particular. Sammy Hagar, I, I'm uh, he's a crazy entrepreneur. He's kind of taken Jimmy Buffett's model and built himself and his lifestyle into a brand. Do you recall your conversations with him and what you thought of him? For, I guess it's solo, but then this Van Halen versus Van Hagar. Did you have a, uh, were you a fan of both iterations and a fan of him? I think it was 98, seven or eight, when uh, I first met Sammy. Uh, we, did a, we did a live Saturday afternoon interview on the radio with a studio audience. And he was just really easy to talk to and, and kind and funny and nice. And, and I had played um, the early, the, the, the first record he did with Van Halen in the middle of the 80s on the air in Halifax. So I liked that music. I liked what he brought to the band. I loved that he was not only a lead singer and a good one at that, but a lead guitar player. I mean, to to play guitar in a band that features Eddie Van Halen, um, yes. <laughs> you got to be pretty good too. Yeah. So so uh, he was great. We had fun, and then uh, years later, I got another opportunity to talk to him after he'd released his book, and uh, and that was really fun. And I'll tell you why. At one point in the interview, uh, Sammy said, "You really did read the whole book." <laughs> Because <laughs> I guess he was used to people reading the you know the the review or the or the or the or the forward at most, but I read it all because I was a fan and that's part of the preparation, right? Read the book, yes. Do the interview, so we had a great talk about things, including music, but not uh, not uh, not just music. We talked about those things. You talked about his entrepreneurial side, like when he started putting um, sprinklers in residential buildings. Um, that was one of his gigs that made him some money. And then, of course, the the tequila entrepreneurship, yeah. which was which was brilliant and, and, and massive money for him. But it wasn't just about the money. He found things he was passionate about, and he got really good at them, and, uh, and the money came later. I think he's a brilliant businessman. And just what you said, he's really turned it into a, it's a lifestyle, and that's what he's marketing. An, another guy who's kind of a brilliant businessman, Gene Simmons, I just saw a documentary if you can believe it, they're back out again. I think he's 71 now. Kiss. <laughs> right? yeah. Jeff, what do you say? Just stop or, or you love it loud? You know, I don't care. I mean, that, why I say that is that it's not apathy. It's more like there's if there's fans, I mean, do what you want. Everyone can do what they want uh, if it's legal. And uh, Kiss is legal still. So, yeah, go out. If you have an audience and you can sell concert tickets, do it. Fill your boots. More power to you. Um, when they first started, uh, when they did the reunion with the four original members, they came to me and did an interview. I guess they were probably in New York and L.A. Uh, and we did an ISDN, a high-quality phone interview, and uh, and all four original members. So so Paul and Gene, the spokespeople, the owners really of the brand, let's face it, uh, did most of the talking, and uh, and Peter... And Ace would just sort of giggled in the background for the hour. <laughs> so I felt kind of bad for them because they were kind of relegated to the clowns of the band. And let's face it, they were probably brought out and dusted off because there was more cachet, more value to having the original Kiss go out and do a, a tour. 
but that was the brainchild of Gene and, and, and Paul. Uh, Those guys know how to make money for sure. Right, and, and I, I, I was never a Kiss fan. I remember being in grade seven when those early records were coming out and thinking, thinking then that this is so gimmicky. Yeah, I mean, I I didn't mind bands that wore makeup like the New York Dolls or like David Bowie and the Spiders from Mars, but I found Kiss to be a little more remedial, a little more, a little more, a little less sophisticated, if you will. But so many of the kids I went to school with absolutely loved them. In fact, my grade six graduation dance, I remember it clearly. There was a Kiss um, lip sync band, <laughs> and they were a huge hit. I just laughed because you know. I was never a massive fan, but I appreciate and respect their um, their success. Sure, the theatrics of it all. Sure. Jeff, you have some, I don't know if I want to call them competing archivists and rock historians, Alan Cross and Eric Alper. Are they competitors or collaborators, friends or frenemies? Um, we're acquaintances for sure. I mean, Alan and I both worked for uh, the corporation at the same time and at different times. And uh, and I always loved his show. In fact, I, I give him credit for kind of teaching me in his very uh, um, personable and natural and uh, style. And he's a great researcher and an incredible writer. I was uh, much lesser a writer for a long time, and I I feel like some of the great things I took from him became elements of my own series. Eric Alper. I've known for decades uh, as a music promoter. He still does that, as you know. But he's also one of the most uh, uh, successful uh, social media uh, hosts, as it were. Uh, Twitter, in fact. I mean, he does he does polls that in you know in an hour or two have thirty thousand likes, comments, retweets, whatever. That's his thing. He's really good at it. So I just think of these other guys that do sing- things that are similar to me in their career. Um, and and have some of the same audience and some differing audience. Jeff, the best description I've heard of your voice was charcoal-infused. You <laughs> claim you developed your distinctive voice via smoking, alcohol, and lack of sleep. Is that uh, was that was that a joke or is this, is, is this the truth? Well, probably. You know, life experience makes you sound the way you sound. Uh, a lot of people didn't sound uh, singers, speakers broadcasters didn't sound the way they sound now at the infancy of their career. Um, It has a lot to do with your lifestyle. There's no question about it. Um, When I get up in the morning at 6 or 7 o'clock, if I've had two drinks the night before, my voice is markedly different than um, if I didn't. It it gives you a little grit, doesn't it? A little sandpaper. And maybe by 6 o'clock this evening I wouldn't sound quite the same. I don't. I don't uh, party the way I used to. I mean, I would be dead by now if I did. Um, but yeah, uh, you know, college. Let me put it this way: my college tapes, which which I hope no one ever finds, but I do hear a bit of them every now and again. I don't sound anything like I sound now. I sound like a kid before his voice broke, and I was nineteen years old then. Yes, I, di- I didn't sound like a man. I sounded like a a wee child. And so, how much have you looked into or how much are you interested in or how much do you do roles as a voiceover, as a voice actor? I think you'd be amazing as the Leafs PA announcer. I, I don't know if you're going <laughs> to yeah. take this as an insult, but I think you should be hosting one of these yacht rock tours, like Kid Rock <laughs> Tour. You, you should be doing it. Are you interested in that kind of stuff, using your voice outside of your core career? 
I do use it in, in, in many ways. I MC a lot of stuff. Uh, I just did something at the Alma Combo a few weeks ago where four people who were there in 1977 at the Alamo when the Rolling Stones did a surprise gig opening for April Wine, or closing for April Wine, but April Wine were the marquee act and the Stones were the surprise guests. Uh, I just went on the Alamo stage a couple of weeks ago with some of the people that were there, Rob Bowman and, uh, and David Bluestein and Duff Roman from Chum Radio. And we uh, we talked about that event, and uh, and they talked about the experience that was being there and seeing the Stones, because the Rolling Stones record just finally came out, twenty three songs, Stones at the Elmo, nineteen seventy seven. So I hosted that. So that was a thing. I do a lot of those types of things related to music. Sometimes I uh, MC weddings, events, parties, anything, um, and then I have a voice agent. And I narrate audio books sometimes. I did the uh, the history of the Horseshoe Tavern in Toronto that David mm. McPherson wrote. Really enjoyed that. It was, I think, 14 or 15 hours telling the story of that famed club on Queen Street. That's out there as an audio book. Um, some commercials for, you know, Indian Motorcycle or Mercedes-Benz or you name it. Mm-hmm. I, 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 don't, I don't book like a, like a crazy person. I, I think because... There's a lot of people that do that exclusively, uh, voiceover for advertising, and they do incredibly well at it. But my focus has always been more the the music side of things. I think my authenticity around music is more intact. Absolutely. I, I do wonder, though, what's the strangest time you were ever recognized solely by your voice? Have you ever ordered a pizza and had the person on the other end go, <laughs> is this Jeff Woods? Yeah, uh, often. Um, <laughs> I was uh, I was at uh, the Live on the Lake recently in, in Burlington, which is a precursor to the Sound of Music Festival. And oftentimes uh, I meet people, and, and there's really two things that happen. One, they either think that I'm James Hetfield from Metallica, and that's a daily <laughs> that's a daily occurrence, no matter where I go in the world. The other thing is just because of our physical similarities. I, I don't play guitar like him, that's for sure. The other thing would be. They're not looking at me at a certain point while we're standing around doing whatever we're doing, and they're like, oh, my God. I go, what? They go, the voice. Now I know who you are. I thought yeah. I knew who you were. You're not James Hatfield, but you are somebody I know. <laughs> and then they remember you know, my voice on the radio, and, and we have a good laugh. And they're like, oh, my God, it really is you. And, uh, and then they want a picture of me to pretend that I'm James Hetfield. <laughs> <laughs> well, you stole my last question, Jeff, because I was yeah. going to ask. I, I feel validated. I was going to ask how often you get um, misinterpreted for James Hetfield. That's fantastic. Well, it's true. It's kind of, I, I always say it could be a lot worse. It could be mistaken for somebody far less appealing. Right? I, I love James. We've, we've, we've talked. We've done an interview together. That's one of the podcast episodes um, from a couple of years ago. Um, it happens every day of the week, and, and usually it goes like this. Has anybody ever told you? I'm like, yep. <laughs> and they're like, what? I go, what, you're going to say, yep. And and and, I, and then they go, really? And I go, you were the first today, though. <laughs> <laughs> the first today. <laughs> right. It doesn't happen so much in, in beautiful Thornbury or Collingwood anymore because people you know, kind of recognize me as me. But if I go to the city or any city, uh, it happens within within seconds, and uh, and then it happens again and again and again and again. But who would be upset by that? Certainly not me. Absolutely, that's great. Right. Uh, Jeff, you've been so good with your time. As we close here, I want to ask about your plans for the remainder of the year and beyond. I know you're working on a new podcast. 
I'm so excited about the podcast. So I'll continue to do my radio show. Uh, season seven starts this September. JeffWoodsRadio.com for the stations and the links to listen and the podcast, right? Um, but the Blue Hotel podcast is, uh, I was, the other morning I woke up, quite literally last week, I woke up and thought, I want to do another podcast. I've dabbled in uh, erotic narrations. I write them, I read them, uh, I've put them out digitally, and there's been some good response to that. Just stories about scenarios. It's kind of like if you're reading uh, uh, Playboy or Penthouse, which, you know, some of our audience did and still do. I write stories like that and then I narrate them. So I thought, I'll do a podcast that incorporates that and uh, interviews with people who are professionals around um, relationships and sex and erotica and love and lust and all the things that go with it. So in September, I'll launch the Blue Hotel podcast, which will be all those things and uh, and available uh, as is my other podcast, wherever you get podcasts. Fabulous. And where, Jeff, should we go when we want to follow you and hear what you're up to? Yeah, I'm on all the socials, as you might imagine. Uh, Jeff Woods Radio on Twitter and Instagram, and uh, and I'm there on Facebook, and uh, and um, jeffwoodsradio.com. It takes you to the radio series, takes you to the podcast, takes you to contact me if you want to send me a note and recommend something I should be talking about or some artist I should be talking to. Excellent. Well, Jeff, I want to thank you. It's been a real pleasure. I appreciate your time. Andrew, you were a great host and a kind man, and I appreciate your time as well. Thank you. And to the listener, thank you for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast. And on behalf of Jeff Woods, I am Andrew Applebaum saying mahalo. show called The Boiling Point with my co-host Dave Vale. Together, we sit down with trailblazing entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and movement makers who are driving meaningful change in our world. The show is all about exploring the lives and perspectives of leaders who are making a difference. Join us for insightful conversations that challenge the status quo, spark new ideas, and inspire you to take action. Find us on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or at BoilingPointPodcast.com. 
I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com.